according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. As always, we are in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, we're looking at verses 1 through 4. It's the prologue to the book. It introduces so much. The doctrine contained in this, uh, these four verses could last us all summer, could last us, uh, man, a long, long time. If we were to fully break down everything that's here, and that there's so much theology proper, Christology, soteriology, eschatology, uh, so many things that are here, including uh, the, all the doctrines of redemption that come in here. We talk about how he made purification for sins and he was seated at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. Man, that, that's, there's seminary courses right there that all come out of these, these first four verses. And so um, I'm curious to see, uh, obviously, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, we're not uh, teaching one chapter a week like we did with Isaiah and Jeremiah. Um, are we gonna, can we get through a chapter in 10 hours? Uh, is it going to be shorter than that, longer than that? What are we going to do? Well, we're going to take it as the Spirit provides and as the Lord leads, and we're going to find out together. Because I honestly don't know know, how long this class is going to last. But we'll see, and uh, we're going to learn in the whole process. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. That's what we're going to talk about today, is Jesus Christ as the Creator in crafting not only the territory, the geography, but also the ages, the timetable, the program of God in, uh, from Alpha to Omega. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. And that might jump out at us and grab our attention, and that might we might not like that at first, all right? Because as we're reading this, we're reading this from our perspective, we're reading this from a human perspective, right? We're all human here this morning. So we read, we tend to have a, an anthropocentric uh, you know, viewpoint as we read these things. But we might want to read, you know, wow, he made purification of sins. We might think, yeah, I'm a sinner. He, he bought my redemption. Is that what this is dealing with? Wait a minute. He made purification with sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All right, I get that. So that I can go to heaven when I die. I can have eternal life. It's not what it says. Having become as much better than the angels. Well, who cares about them? (laughs) All right, what about me? Okay, well, we're going to get to humanity. But the first two chapters is all about angelity. All right, And then when it starts to introduce humanity and it starts to talk about how he's better than Moses, then we start to contrast an old priesthood with a new priesthood. And so the author here is taking his readers on a very slow progression, but he's doing it deliberately. And we don't want to miss that. We don't want to rush ahead to to where we are and, and miss the tremendous meat that comes in these early chapters. So the radiance of His glory. We'll have a lot of fun with that. and The exact representation of His nature. We're going to see a lot about that. All right. But for today though, we're still dealing with uh, speaking to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. That's what we've got to deal with here this morning. All right. 
God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to humble ourselves before his throne of grace, to ask for his blessing to shape our thinking in our study today. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the book of Hebrews. And I thank you for brothers and sisters here today that have come, have humbled themselves. We pray, Father, that you would be at work to open our eyes, to open our ears, to open our heart. And Father, take the Word of God and make it real to each one of us. And some of these things are difficult. The author of Hebrews told his readers that he wanted to take them into some deeper things, but they couldn't handle it. That uh, because of their hardness of heart, they were dull of hearing. And uh, he wanted to teach them deeper things about Melchizedek, and they weren't ready for it. So I pray, Father, that, uh, that we would be ready that we would be ready to drink the milk and to eat the meat and to take all things, Father, as you, as you feed us. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, let me get past what we dealt with a week ago. We started verses 1 and 2a. I'm going to handle these uh, together, taking us through uh, the air of all things. All right, no, ending us through the word son. So he spoke and then he spoke. And in these last days, he spoke to us in his son. And so we'll handle that development, and then we'll move on to talk about his heirship, his appointment, and, uh, and his birth. He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So we'll deal with that secondly. But starting here with just verse 1 and verse 2a, we have all of these P's, and I teased you with these P's last week. All of the P's that come from the, the prophets to the patriarchs to the, to the preaching and the many portions and in many ways. And, and the author of Hebrews uses a lot of P's through alliteration and through uh, the rhetoric of speaking this. So much of Hebrews is designed to be spoken. It's designed to be read aloud in an oratory to the, to the hearers, uh, more so even than the readers of the text. And so when you're talking about polymeros, kai polutropos, palai, the, the p-p-p-p-p sound just comes across and, and, it, and they, it comes across powerfully in, uh, in the way that p can do. So polymeros, kai, polytropos, palai. And, and it's, a, it's a way of just hitting pa 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 and getting that out there. And the hearers, you got the attention right away. And this is where we have in many parts, in many ways, and long ago. And then we have two datives, through whom God spoke and to whom God spoke. He spoke to the fathers, another P, the patrasin, right? Patrasin. And we can rejoice over the patrasin. We like the fathers. We're not, uh, we're not uh, raging against the patriarchy in, in this church, okay, as far as that goes. And the th- I'm joking, but the things that militant feminists like to do when they're raging against the patriarchy, all right? So we have the patrasin, to the fathers. But it's en tois prophetus, in the prophets. So to the patriarchs through the prophets. And so there's a total of these five Ps. And they jump out and they hit you in, in the way that they do. So God's multiplicity messages, the, the variety of ways and the variety of times that he spoke in all kinds of different things that came via angel of the Lord visitations, that came from audible voices in the sky, that came through the burning bush, that came through pillar of cloud, that came through talking donkeys. I mean, it's almost like God was having fun just trying something new, <laughs> saying, well, I haven't done this yet, let's try this. And, and using that variety of ways intentionally intentionally giving many portions in many ways 
so that all of it would need to be tied together somehow. So that it wasn't all just a scattering of, of messages that, that have no coherence, that have no tie that binds. Well, they do have a tie that binds, and they're bound in Jesus Christ. Because everything in the Old Testament was looking ahead to Jesus Christ. And we need to get this. Uh, from dreams to visions, etc. Prophetic teaching was given in declarative oracles. Sometimes the Lord would come to somebody. The word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, right? And so that would be a, a, an oracle that would then be delivered, a declarative oracle. Say to my people Israel and say unto them. And, and, then, and the prophet would just be a mouthpiece and repeat what it was that he heard. There were also demonstrative pantomimes, animal rituals, tabernacle furnishings, shadows and typology. Ultimately, all of these things then, as they were given verbally, as they were given through speaking prophets to the fathers, they then were placed in writing. And they were recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures, ultimately placed within the Hebrew canon. And Romans 3, 1 and 2 speaks to this. What advantage has the Jew? Great in every respect. Because first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. It wasn't the Greeks, it wasn't the Romans, it wasn't the Germans, it wasn't the Americans. It was the Hebrew people that received the Hebrew Scriptures. And uh, that's the, the great advantage that they have. But now all of that ended in about the 4th century, about 410 B.C. with Malachi. And then God was quiet for 400 years. No more speaking prophets, no more written Scripture. It was a silent period. And that, that tension, that silence, you could cut it with a knife. That tension just built and built and built and built. Because as they were studying their Bible, they're marking off their calendar. Daniel gave them a calendar. Daniel told them that there were going to be 69 sevens from a decree that was issued until Messiah the Prince was cut off. So they're marking their calendar. They're marking their calendar. There's a great sense of expectation in that first century when John the Baptist was born and when Jesus was born. And this is uh, what we deal with here. So he spoke long ago to the fathers in many portions, in many ways, but at the end of these last days has now spoken to us in his son. And so although God spoke, he spoke. And the verb laleo is the verb to speak, and it's used twice. He spoke, he spoke. And the first spoke is a participle, the second spoke is, a, is an indicative verb. They're both aorist tense. Aorist participle followed by the aorist indicative of laleo. So having spoken, he spoke. Okay, Although he spoke, he spoke. And that's the best way to take it. I, I like the although rendering for uh, the aorist participle. Although he spoke to the fathers in many portions in many ways, that wasn't everything there was to say. There was, there was a word that was not given, and that is the word made flesh to dwell among us. So God gave all kinds of words in all kinds of ways, but one word remained ungiven, waiting to become flesh and dwell among us. And that's the introduction to the Gospel of John. And that's, I think, John made use of Hebrews when he, when he wrote that introduction, that, Job, that, that John himself was shaped by the doctrine from the book of Hebrews and uh, had that in his soul as he was writing the Gospel of John. All right, many parts in many ways cannot be the final word. God didn't design it like that. Something or someone must provide a complete picture. And so Jesus, we understand, is the complete picture. He is the final message. He is the, we would call it the keynote address, the main speaker from God himself is God the Son. Jesus is the complete picture for what the Old Testament spoke of. If you're doing an Old Testament study and you don't see Jesus in it, 
I recommend you study more. <laughs> All right? Because somehow, some way, that Old Testament study is connected to Jesus in his role as the coming king, in his role as the, as the coming Christ, in his role somehow with respect to the unfolding plan of God. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We want to understand that. So Luke 24 and John 5, I think, uh, he rebuked the Pharisees. He said, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but the scriptures speak of me. The scriptures speak of me. And that's the, uh, the fulfillment of it there. Upon the last of these days, God spoke to us through a son. God spoke to us through a son. So as we're looking at it here in verse 2, in the last of these days, or upon the last of these days. So we have the long ago days to the fathers through the prophets, but then in the last of these days. And by the way, that right there, I think, testifies on a dispensational basis recognizes that Israel has had their stewardship suspended. That Israel's stewardship was suspended when God put uh, His plan for Israel on hold and He began to unfold His plan for the church. That uh, with the day of Pentecost in 33 AD, a whole new stewardship was, uh, was placed upon this earth. That is us, the church, the body of Christ. And so the, the days long ago to the fathers... You can think of that as the Jewish stewardship, the, the stewardship of Israel, right? And that came to a, a, a present uh, hold status, right? That came to an end. So upon the last of these days of Israel's stewardship, God spoke to us through a son. The beloved son is the ultimate messenger. So hold your finger here in Hebrews and let's look at Matthew 21. We can look at any of these. We can look at Matthew, we can look at Mark, we can look at Luke. Tell you what, let's look at Luke. Luke 20 and verse 30. That way we can keep it with the same author if in fact Luke did author Hebrews. Luke 20 and verse 13. It's a parable that's given in all three of the synoptic gospels. And uh, this parable begins with verse 9. And as you're reading this parable, keep in mind God spoke long ago to the fathers through the prophets in many portions in many ways. And in this parable it says, a man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. This represents a prophet. He spoke to the fathers through the prophets in many portions and in many ways, but it was through the prophets. Here's a slave. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. So when you think about Moses and, and Elijah and Elisha and, and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these prophets, which of the prophets did your fathers not abuse? All right. Which of the prophets... Uh, you know, lived lives of ease and, and, and lived out full days and died at a ripe old age, content with whatever. Very few. Almost all of them were, were mistreated and, and most of them were killed. And Jesus uh, says that, or says as much, because they were building tombs to the prophets. So um, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? What shall I do? Again, language of accommodation, God 
knows what he's going to do. This plan has been put in effect since the foundation of the world. But for the sake of the parable, and for the sake of telling the story, communicating to us the thinking behind the action, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Okay? Well, you'd like to think so, wouldn't you? All right. Sadly, they don't. In fact, the ultimate rejection, they crucify the Christ. And so uh, when the vine growers saw him, and the doctrine in this is extraordinary to me, when the vine growers saw him, notice, who are these vine growers? They're not slaves and they're not sons. Who are these guys? They were simply entrusted, rented it out to these vine growers. They're tenant farmers. They're not landowners. They have no rights. They've hired themselves out to do the labor. And so uh, when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, this is the heir. And the principle of heirship is critical. We're going to study that here in Hebrews because Jesus is the heir of all things. They said, this is the heir. This is our chance. It's not another one of those stupid slaves that we've been abusing and, and mistreating and killing. This is the heir. This is the heir. And what's their plan? Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. Now, how does killing the heir make them heirs? How does killing the heir give them the inheritance? See, if I go and kill Bill Gates' kid, does that mean I'm going to inherit Bill Gates' fortune? Do I have billions in store for me if I go find a billionaire? And No. Okay. It's not only a rejection of the son, it's also a rejection of the father. It's a rejection of the father's inheritance. Who wants that inheritance anyway? They want Satan's inheritance. They want Satan to win this angelic conflict. It comes back to the angels. We've got two chapters of angels to deal with in Hebrews before we even get to Moses and, and humans in chapter 3. So let us kill him. And, uh, the, so that the inheritance will be ours. You know, if you think about it, what was Esau's big beef? Why did he not care about his inheritance? Why did he sell it to Jacob for the the pot of stew? Okay, and he was the the firstborn son, but Jacob was the son of promise. All right, and it wasn't necessarily a rejection of the son. It wasn't really a hostility against Jacob. He was happy to sell him the stew, sell him the inheritance for a pot of stew. It was a rejection of the father. It was, a, it was a rejection, like, well, that loser, he's got nothing to give to me anyway, so who cares? Okay? It's always that rejection of the father. When David went and was checking up on his brothers at the battlefield, and they were scornful, he said, what are you doing here? Why aren't you back there in Bethlehem watching those few scraggly sheep that are a loser of a father, Jesse, that's all he's managed to put forward. And, and it's, a, it's a scornful dismissal of Jesse. It's a rejection of the father. Because David's older brothers, they hit big time. They were serving King Saul. You know, yeah, big time, all right. They were cowering in the face of Goliath. And, and David, the humble boy, showed up just in time to kill the guy, right? Anyway, this is all a rejection of the father. The more we understand that, we can, we can recognize that these attacks on inheritance are really rejections of God the Father. So stay tuned, because that comes up in Hebrews as well.
Um, so, uh, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus, of course, suffers outside the camp, and uh, the Golgotha, he goes out to the crucified outside the city. And um, the fulfillment there. So what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? <laughs> what do you think they deserve? You know, how would you, how would you treat these guys, right? This is almost like the trap that, uh, that uh, Nathan led for David when Nathan gave his, uh, his parable of the, of the uh, adultery with Bathsheba and trapped David. David was furious. He told the story of the little the man and the poor man and his little ewe lamb and and David was furious because that man deserves to die. <laughs> and uh, you remember the story I'm talking about? And uh, Nathan said, yep, and you're the man. That's you. You deserve to die. And he just laid it out there. So here, what then deserve, you know, what uh, then will the owners of the, uh, the owner of the vineyard do to them? And I think if we were to read the Matthew account, um, he allows for these listeners to to hang themselves with their own words. Here in Luke's account, he answers it himself. He will come and destroy those vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And will give the vineyard to others. And so when they heard it, they said, may it never be. Okay? Kind of fun. If you're preaching a Bible class and you say your closing prayer and then someone stands up and says, I don't believe any of that. Okay? May it never be. Wow. Well, you're not rejecting the speaker, you're rejecting his father because he came to deliver the Father's message. All right, so Jesus looked at them and said, well, here we go. <laughs> the, uh, the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone, and this is what it's about. They're rejecting the Christ. They're rejecting the cornerstone. And yet that's the stone that's going to be the foundation stone for the, for the church, for the body of Christ. So this is the thing. The Son is the ultimate messenger. And the Father expects that the Son is going to be accepted even if the slaves are not. The Son is the ultimate messenger. And uh, huios is our word for Son, 5207, 375 uses, including 24 in the book of Hebrews. 24 times. Sonship is going to become critical. And our sonship is important because it's based on His sonship, right? Moses is faithful as a servant. Jesus is faithful as a son. And there's a huge difference. And that's what chapter 3 is dealing with. You and I, okay? You can think of Israel and their servant and their servant position. We have a sonship position in Christ based upon the past completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So stay tuned for some sonship lessons as we relate to that. All right, back to Hebrews then and some things to deal with here in verse 2. whom he appointed heir of all things. You know, a biological son is not necessarily an heir. The father may disinherit. The father may write you out of the will. The father may uh, not claim you. If, uh, for example, uh, uh, there was a difference between wives and concubines. As far as a, a child of a concubine was a legitimate son, not a bastard in any respect, but not an heir at all, unless the, the father chose through an extraordinary amount of grace to give heirship status to the concubine child. Uh, the concubine child had no right to claim any kind of inheritance. Um, but here's the son 
who has been appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So the two doctrines are taught right there. Inheritance and creation. And the same son is the agent for both. The same son is the agent of creation. God the Son did everything that's ever been created at the will of the Father. But it's also His at the end of the, at, at the Omega moment. It's all His. Everything was created through Him and for Him, we're told in Colossians chapter 1. So He served the Father as faithfully as ever in creating everything. But in that faithfulness, He was benefiting Himself ultimately because it's all for Him. Everything is for Him in the Father's plan. And we want to understand this as well. But to be the heir of all things, that's powerful. Especially since we have to consider that you and I are fellow heirs with the heir of all things. That's what we want to be. You know, you don't want to be the second son, the third son, the fourth son, if in the Father's will the first son gets everything. (laughs) Okay? You know, you're there reading the will and it says, oh, the oldest child gets everything. And here you are, child number two, child number three, whatever. There's nothing left over because he got it all. This is the beauty of us being in Christ because we are fellow heirs with the heir of all things. And it's a glory to stop and consider. All right. Here's some deep stuff. And I don't know if you've had this before. Some of you have had this before because you've had it in our Proverbs class. Some of you had this before because you read it in the Plan of God Reader. Some of you had this before maybe another pastor taught it to you. All right. God the Son is God the Father's uniquely begotten and, I think, uniquely beloved Son. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the heir of all things. And we want to look at all these passages in their totality. Each one of them individually says what it says, but all of them in their totality, I think, they paint a comprehensive picture for what it means to be the only begotten Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What does that mean to be only begotten? It means to be the one of a kind. It means to be the unique, the one and only, the unique son. And if, if you're unique, there's nothing else like you, even if there are other sons. Isn't it interesting? Isaac is called the only begotten, even though he's 16 years younger than his brother Ishmael. He's still called the monogonese. Isaac is the monogonese because it was uniquely miraculous in the impregnation of Sarah that, Ad- that Abraham and Sarah had Isaac in their old age. There was nothing unique about making a baby with the the slave girl, okay? That was common. That happened a lot, that uh, you would have concubine slave girls that that you would have children with, all right? So there was nothing unique about Ishmael, but there was everything unique about Isaac. And so he's called, Isaac is called the monogenes, even though he has half-brothers everywhere. He's got not only Ishmael, but then with Keturah, Abraham had seven more sons, After Sarah died, he remarried. With Keturah, he had more babies. That was just uh, grace upon grace because God promised him to be the father of a multitude of nations. So uh, John 3.16, of course, we know this. God so loved the world that he gave his monogenes. And when you think monogenes, the mono is one, but the the genes, think of genes or genos, think of it as kind. It's a kind of son, not not ganao to beget or to, to birth. Okay? We've got other passages that speak of his birthing. But John 3.16 speaks of his uniqueness, his one of a kind. And we have in our, in our 
classific scientific classification systems, we have genus and species, right? So when you think of the genus, you're thinking of the kind. Everything replicates after its kind. Jesus is a one of a kind, is a monogenes. There's no other son like Jesus, is what we're saying. And when you believe in Christ, you receive eternal life. And that, uh, that's the provision. That apart from believing in Christ, you're headed for the lake of fire. He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That whosoever is beautiful. Okay, Whosoever means even me. It's a beautiful concept. All right. He's the uniquely begotten, the uniquely beloved. Now, we've got some other passages as well. I think Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is going to be quoted in Hebrews again and again and again. And again and again. And again. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. See, if they're rejecting the Son, what they're really rejecting is the Father. That's important. Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. This uh, ultimately is looking forward to the millennium. They're going to chafe at the, the throne of David in Jerusalem. They're going to hate being controlled by God the Father and God the Son. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. This is millennial anger, millennial fury. This is on the other side of the tribulational anger and tribulational fury. And he says, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Psalm 2 is predicated upon a seated king on the throne. Not seated in heaven at his right hand, seated on earth on his throne, upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so here we have the uniquely begotten Son of God. Here we have Jesus Christ in His glory as the begotten one, the one and only, that God the Father Himself begat, that He begat Jesus Christ. And it's, it's, it's powerful. And it says today. There was such an emphasis upon today. Well, what day was that? Okay, is it December 25th? What day was that? He calls it today. And it was a very significant today to the Father and the Son. I believe it was a very significant today because it was the first today ever. It was the first today of time. The first today at the alpha moment of the created dimension of time. Prior to that, it was eternity past. This is today. The very first of all the days. Today I have begotten thee. And, uh, and it goes on, uh, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And there's promises that come there. But ask of me. And the, and the, the impact on this, I think, is, is huge. Jesus is not only the son of David, he is the son of man. He is in this, in this capacity. He has a greater kingdom, a larger realm, a larger domain beyond simply the Jewish nation. And that's what he's going to get after the millennium, after the thousand years. He gets the ends of the earth as his possession, not just the river Euphrates to the, river, to the Nile River. Okay? That's the territory he has in the millennium. 
In the, in the millennium, he rules in the Abrahamic land grant on the throne of David over the Jewish people. And beyond those boundaries, what do you have on the other side of those boundaries? Gentile nations and Gentile kings that have to come to him during the millennium. And they come and they worship every Feast of Tabernacles, okay, or not. They, some of them may boycott, okay. And so, but he's told, ask of me and I will give you, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. Not just the Jewish nation, all the nations. And uh, the totality of everything is designed for Christ. That becomes important. All right, Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8. Let me give you this one too if you've never seen this. We spent a lot of time on this in some Wednesday morning classes in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 8, 22 through 25, really going down through verse 31 even in a fuller context. Although I'm going to, I know why I did that. We'll limit the, uh, this aspect to 22 through 25. <clears throat> the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. Now this is a, in Proverbs 8, this is poetry and this is wisdom speaking. And as wisdom's been speaking for seven chapters, now wisdom in chapter 8 gets a soliloquy about wisdom's birth and about the beginning from God himself. And so uh, the Kana possession there, I, I love the Kana that's there in verse 22. The Lord Kana'd me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. Okay? Kana. This is Eve Kana'd and named her son Kana, named him Cain. Cain comes from Kana. And Eve said, I've acquired a man child from the Lord. So she named him Acquired. She named him Kana. And so Cain comes from this Kana. And, and it's used that way for a reason. Kana, Kana is a generic term. Kanaka is, is ubiquitous. It just means you got something. Okay? It's like the English word got. <laughs> you know? Well, how'd you get that? Did you buy it? Did you steal it? Did you build it? Did you uh, birth it? Did you, I mean, we can get things a lot of different ways, okay? You might even get what I'm talking about. If you get it uh, mentally, right? You can get, you can get, you can get, you can get. You can get bored. Maybe you already are. And so there's that ubiquitous get, okay? Same thing in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the ubiquitous get is kana. And it doesn't matter if you stole it, if you bought it, if you birthed it, if you built it, the point is you got it. Okay? And then in the context, the other verses around will kind of explain how. How did you get it? And here, every verb surrounding the get is a birthing verb. All the terminology throughout this text centers on conception and delivery, right? Labor and delivery. There it is. So, the Lord canod me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established. That's why I call this the boundary moment, the alpha moment between, from everlasting, that's eternity past, to temporality present, right? From eternity past to the temporal present. What's that boundary 
that beginning boundary of time, that alpha moment. The Lord possessed me. From everlasting I was established. From the beginning. Not in the beginning, but from the beginning. Because He Himself is the beginning. From the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. Think about that. Brought forth is a delivery term. Okay, We bring forth a child and when it exits the birth canal... It's a term of, of, of childbirth. And, and wisdom tells us, or Jesus Christ tells us, God the Son tells us when He was birthed. Okay? Not His deity. Deity is eternal. His humanity. When He became the God-man. And it was when there were no depths. So right away, man, my mind is blown. Right away I'm thinking, wow, this is huge. And I want to I want to open this Bible up and I'm going to leave it sitting here and then I'm going to go get an entirely separate Bible and open it up in Genesis 1 and put it side by side. I don't want to be flipping pages. I want to look at them side by side. Because Genesis 1.1 says in the beginning. But Proverbs 8 says from the beginning. Genesis 1.1 says that the earth was formless and void and the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the deep. Proverbs 8 says when there, were no, when there was no deep, when there were no depths, I was birthed. I was brought forth. You see that? So we're going, wow, wait a minute. This is a huge, this has an impact. This is significant. Okay, because this is not a manger. I want to get that across. I, I haven't said a word yet this morning about the virgin and Mary and the manger and the actual birth of his physical body that that happens thousands of years from this this is before there were any depths this is at the boundary of eternity past in time time itself so when he says today i have begotten you that's the very first today ever all right so uh, when there were no depths i was brought forth when there were no springs abounding with water before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. When he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world. See, Adam was made, fashioned out of the dust. Before there was any dust, God the Son, his humanity was birthed. As it says here, nor the first dust of the world. And so these things are significant. When, uh, and we'll talk about this, because this then takes us not only from his begetting, but this also takes us to the creation as well. And it talks about uh, creating the mountains, creating the seas, creating the hills, the heavens. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, see, he was there. When he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set the sea for its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his command, he was there. See, Proverbs 8 is in perfect harmony with John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. God the Son was with God the Father from all eternity past. Not only in His deity, but then He was birthed into His humanity as well as the Alpha moment before His works of old. Before anything else came to be, the humanity of Jesus Christ was birthed. So this then, 
I think, gives us an added explanation for Colossians 1.15. Join me there. Colossians 1.15, because He is the firstborn of all creation. And uh, sometimes this gets dismissed. Sometimes this gets ignored as a just flowery language or hyperbole or poetry or, well, firstborn in the sense of preeminence. He wasn't chronologically first. Maybe He was. All right? If Proverbs 8 is correct and Hebrews 1 is correct and, and Psalm 2 is correct, then what's to say that He wasn't birthed in His humanity? Colossians 1 and verse 15. Uh, backing up a little bit, we're, clearly we're talking about Christ here. Thanks be, uh, here's, here's what Christ did on our behalf. And verse 13, He rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is what the Father did for us. Transferring us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You want to be in the Son's kingdom? Of course. That's what it means to be reconciled, to be redeemed, to be born again. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you're not in Christ, you're still in Adam, you, there is no redemption. But if you're in Christ, you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And He is the image of the invisible God. That's how Paul puts it here in Colossians 1. The author of Hebrews says he is the radiance of his glory, right? It's like no one sees the Father, but we see the Son. And if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father, okay? You go out at night and you're looking at the stars. Do you see the stars? No, you see the light that left the stars that traveled here. You see the, the radiance, if you will. You don't see the Father, but you see the light that came from the Father that traveled here. You see the Son, God the Son. So, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the visible of the invisible. He's, the, he's what you can see that represents what you can't see. The exact representation of His nature. And it goes on to say, the firstborn of all creation. Not just in preeminence, not just in glory, not just in importance. First. Firstborn. Naturally, that would be considered chronologically. The firstborn of not just all human beings, but the firstborn of all creation. Birthed before anything else was made. And it goes on to spell that out. For by Him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. None of those are found in Genesis 1 but they were created by Jesus Christ. All things have been created through Him, and then notice, and for Him. If we grasp that, we do ourselves a huge favor for Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 2. Because He didn't subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we were speaking, but He subjected it to Christ, the one who is appointed the heir of all things. And so He is before all things literally and in him all things hold together hebrews tells us that he upholds all things by the word of his power so we, we get this all right and uh, much of this doctrine is very much harmonious with uh, pauline doctrine why we think luke is a great candidate for the authorship because he traveled so much with paul with paul when paul wrote colossians okay mentioned as the beloved physician in the book of Colossians. 
Um, and so no question that that similar doctrine comes across and, and Luke expresses it powerfully in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1. And so we have this aspect of the, of the heir of all things because he is the firstborn. He is birthed by the Father. All right. Now the only thing I think that struggles with that, and you're probably wrestling with it now if you've never thought this before, never been exposed to it before, is that, that um, oftentimes we struggle to separate his humanity from his physical body. Right? And so naturally, it's, it's, it's natural to assume that the God-man has always been God from eternity past, but he became a man when the virgin got pregnant. That he became a man when she birthed him in the manger stall. And that as soon as she had a little baby boy in her hands, at that moment then is when hypostatic union started and Jesus Christ became the God-man. That's the normal assumption. What I'm teaching you this morning is bigger than that. What I'm teaching you this morning is that God the Son had a human nature from the foundation of the world, from the alpha moment of time. That his human nature, he didn't need a, a body to have a human nature. Specifically speaking, we have the prophecy, a body thou hast prepared for me. Because I already have a human nature, I just don't have a body yet. A body you have prepared for me. And so Jesus Christ was human already from the moment the Father birthed his humanity. The Father birthed his humanity, vested it onto the person of God the Son, and Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man from that moment forward. That's the difference, okay? If you have any questions on that, Wednesday night's our question and answer time, but this is, this is a, a much larger view of the humanity of Christ. So, so keep that in mind. And especially when you come back and you start reading Colossians again, God the Son is the creator of everything, right? Planet Earth, the moon, the sun, the galaxies. Not only that, not only was it God the Son who did all that, it was the God-man who did all that. It was God the Son already in His hypostatic union who created the universe. Does that change some thoughts? Might that start to resonate with the idea that this created physical universe is anthropocentric? That it's crafted and designed for humanity, not angelity? Did he subject to angels the world to come of which, concerning which we're speaking? See, if we're not wrapped up in the body thing, then I think we do all right. See, God the Son is God the Father's appointed builder of all things, the craftsman to faithfully execute the Father's plan. God the Son is God the Father's appointed builder of all things. You can think of God in His architectural capacity and think of Jesus Christ in His engineering capacity. The planner and the builder. And they both can be spoken of as building. One planned it, one executed that plan. And so, uh, and in this too I think we wrestle with a little bit um, John 1, 3, apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. God the Son is the creator of everything. He spoke and it came into existence. That's uh, Psalm 33, 6. We already read Colossians 1, 16. By Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. All right, None of, none of the invisibles in Genesis, but we see it here. 
Hebrews 1, 2, through whom also he made the ages. Through whom also he made the ages. And we'll talk about that. Not just physical universe, but the program from Alpha to Omega. The ages. We'll see also in Hebrews eleven three. By faith we understand the worlds were made, not through what was seen, but out of what, what, what was unseen. Creation is ex nihilo. It is out of nothing. Bara is to bring into existence that which did not exist. To create from nothing. The Latins called it ex nihilo, out of nothing. Uh, Psalm 33, 6. I think we're okay with the sun as the builder. We, we get this in so many passages. Like I say, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 11. That it's God the Son that's, that's the creator of all things. Not the Father, not the Holy Spirit, but the Son. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. You could say by God the Son. Right? Sometimes Yahweh is the Father, sometimes Yahweh is the Son. But the word of the Lord, who's the word? That's the word, right? Became flesh, dwelt among us. The word, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Every time you read... The word, uh, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. You think that was a uh, personal visit from Jesus Christ? Who comes as the angel of the Lord in a Christophany, a theophany? The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, that was Jesus dropping in for dinner, fellowshipping with Jeremiah and giving him a message to speak to the Jewish people. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. And there's a connection between breath and spirit and the living things that God breathed into. So God the Son is the agent of creation. We get that. Now back to Proverbs again. I saw some wrinkled eyes as we were looking at Proverbs 8. Because in 22 through 25 we see his birthing. All these birthing terms. So I was possessed in verse 22 or acquired and established in verse 23 brought forth brought forth all right so in 22 through 25 we've got his birthing now in 26 and following we have creation and as we're reading this it almost looks like it's the father doing the creating right because it says while he had not yet made the earth so that would seem to be the Father's doing that. While He had not yet made the earth and the fields nor the first dust of the world, when He established the heavens, I was there. Well, golly, that seems like it's the Father who's doing all this. When He made firm the skies above, I thought the Son did that. When He, uh, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when He set the sea, for the sea its boundary. So all of this appears to be the Father. I say appears to be. We've got to get to the end. Because we can say this with certainty. Yes, the Father did all this, but He had an agent to do it. When He set for the sea a boundary so that the water would not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundations of the earth, I was there. Job wasn't there, but Jesus was there. Okay? It says, I was beside Him as a master workman. Now we have our clue. 
Yes, the father did that, but he did it through a workman. He did it through a beloved son who faithfully executed his entire plan. See? And it's, it's, it's not a trick of language. It's not a trick of anything. It's, it's normal. We do the same thing. We talk about who built this building, right? Well, Scott Grubb was the architect. He designed it, but he didn't pound any nails, okay? Or, uh, you know, we built it as a flock. The father built it, right? Who built this place? Say, well, I did. Pastor Bob built this church. Not really. Like, I'm pounding nails? Are you kidding me? Um, But we can use that as a usage because I happened to be the pastor at the time that, that it was built. Right? The Father built the universe, but the Son is the master craftsman, as it says here in verse 30. And more than that, I was beside Him as a master workman. I was before Him as a child. I was daily His delight, rejoicing always before Him. That's the language of playing as a child, playing before His Father. And the Father that's just loves more than anything watching, right? You know, you're watching your kid and he's putting bricks together and you're going, oh, okay? Because he's stacking blocks on top of each other and building a thing. And, and the father is just delighted in the son. Well, God the father was just delighted in God the son who created the universe. Delighting in his son. And the son was daily his delight. And it's significantly daily his delight because it was this day i had begotten you and the next day and the next day and the next day and every day god the father was well pleased with god the son god the son is well pleased with god the father rejoicing always before him rejoicing in the world his earth and having my delight see even though it's designed for him the son always intends to give it back to the father and having my delight in the sons of men. The verse that closes this whole poem is one of the most striking. Because we're expecting to see angels here and we don't. We see humanity. It's like in Hebrews where we're expecting to see humanity, but first we start with the angels. Here we're expecting to see angels because they were created first. Angels were here before humans. But when Jesus was creating everything and playing before the Father... His delight was in the sons of men. His his delight was in the plan of the Father to work through humanity. And that's what the author of Hebrews delves into. The author of Hebrews says, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you have thought of him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, but you have exalted him. See, and so there are themes involved here. That Hebrews bring all of the Old Testament into a scope that it, it, it should just overwhelm us with wonder, with amazement. And maybe this morning you're thinking of something you never thought of before. We're going to go to communion here in a moment. And we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. And maybe today we got a little bit more to consider about Jesus. About His humanity that didn't start in a manger in Bethlehem. It started at the alpha moment of all time. And, and some considerations. And, <clears throat> you know, maybe there's some hang-ups. If, if we're really wrapped up about bodies, I get that. You've got these impressive bodies and you're all impressed with your bodies and what great shape they're in and how pretty they are. and all. I, I get that. But 
for a moment, step away from that bodily way of thinking. My mother left her body in 2012. And that body uh, was cremated and stuck in an urn. My mother is still human. You don't need your body to be human. Chop off parts of your body, you're still a human. Lose your body altogether, you're still a human. She remains human today. She's waiting for that body to be glorified, as all, they all will at the trumpet. Okay, She's still human. Jesus did not need His body in the manger to be human. His humanity was birthed by the Father at that alpha moment. Proverbs 8 demonstrates that. So the God-man created everything. And that maybe, maybe that opens our eyes to some things. Maybe now we start to see when dust was formed and God shaped Adam, breathed into Adam, does it mean a little bit more to you now that Adam was made in the image of God? If God the Son already has humanity? Maybe there's a, an impact to that. Maybe there's a significance, a deeper thing we can start thinking about. Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you, Father, that while in a lot of ways it can be overwhelming, in other ways, Father, your spirit teaches us all things, even the deep things of God. And I pray that we would search the scriptures and see if these things are so. I pray, Father, that we would be humble before you to expand our thinking, that we not be slow of hearing, that we be not content with just sipping on the milk but that we would sink our teeth into the meat of your word and and be chewing, Father, on the deep things. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his glory, the glory that he had with you before the world was. And Father, uh, open our eyes to these things. Jesus spent a lot of time thinking about the world that was and looking forward to the world ahead. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame. And I pray that we too might have that glory set before us as we partake of the communion table, Father, we're looking forward to the, to the glory set before us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we need to uh, bring the Sunday school classes in for communion. So while that's happening, we can sing our communion hymn. I lost my sticky note. There it is. Blue hymnal number 242 is our communion hymn. 